We'll be reading Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22 this morning. Let's give attention to God's Word. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this reminder of where our hope is. Father, thank you for showing us that we have an eternal inheritance that is kept secure in you and not in us. God, sometimes we don't feel it. Sometimes we don't feel like we've been bought with a price. Sometimes we don't feel like we have an inheritance. Sometimes we don't feel secure. Sometimes... We feel at odds with you. And Father, I pray that we would this morning know, know objectively that we are secure in you. I pray, Father, that we would know that we are clean in Christ Jesus and cleansed by the blood of Christ. I pray that we would know that our covenant with you is secure in Jesus' death. I pray, God, that we would... We would find joy in knowing that we have an eternal inheritance that no one can take away. Father, I pray for your help this morning. I'm weak, physically not feeling well. Father, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help all who hear, Lord. I pray, Father, that all who have come in and are in the doldrums of December, Father, I pray that you would help us see you, encounter you, Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past September, there was rejoicing for all those who love the NFL because the referees came back and the games got better. But at the same time, another major sport, at least major sport to some people in September, it didn't happen because they couldn't reach a, reach a collective bargaining agreement. See, this is this other major sport that people in the South you may not know about this major sport, but for people who are from the north, like the Mansuitos and other people like that, they, they, they know about this sport from up north. And this, this sport, it's called hockey. It's called hockey. They play it with sticks. It's on ice. I know it's a foreign thing. But uh, hockey this year has, has really not happened because they couldn't resolve their differences. And since September, over 422 hockey games have been canceled. And, 
And um, I'm sure that many hockey wives are very grateful. But uh, since, since September, 422 games have been canceled, and it's not known whether there's going to be a season at all this year. And it's really largely been because of one thing. They could not, they cannot still, as of last Thursday, they still can't find anybody to mediate their differences. They can't find anybody to reconcile between the differences that the owners have and the differences that the players have. They can't have, they can't find anyone who can adequately represent either side. And, and everyone who tries is, is failing and keeps failing. And it just shows how difficult the job of, of mediation can be between two estranged groups. Because after all, this is just sports. And for most of us in the South, we would say, who cares about hockey anyway? But um, it, it's, it's just a sport, but it just shows how difficult mediation is. Mediation is insanely difficult, even in something as simple as a disagreement between people about how they're going to play a game and how they're going to play sports. It's, it's inherent when there's differences that a mediator is needed. And in this passage, it's speaking to us about the need for mediation, and it's also speaking about the remedy that we have a mediator, but it's, there's no minor problem. We don't just have a minor problem. We're not talking about sports. Humanity has a massive problem. The massive problem humanity has is that we've rebelled against our Creator. We're, we're not reconciled with God, and, and we need a mediator. And, and often, I can forget this. I don't know about you, but about this time of year, I can kind of become blah. Anybody ever feel like that? Just kind of blah. You know, you just, you just kind of, kind of feel like, wow, the year's almost over, and now there's all this shopping, and I'm a little tired right now. And, and you can forget what this whole season is supposed to be about. In fact, you can forget who we have in Jesus Christ. You can forget why we needed Jesus to come. We needed Jesus to come because we needed and we need a mediator. And what this passage is telling us is it's telling us amazingly good news. We have a mediator of a new covenant. This is not an old covenant. This is not a hopeless covenant. We have a mediator of a new covenant. Ever since Adam, we've needed somebody to mediate between us and God. We've needed a new representative head who would, who would take the place of Adam. Who would stand in our stead so we could be reconciled with God. And not just Adam either, because you know, every one of us has proved. Uh, maybe you proved it this morning. Maybe you got a little angry with your spouse or your children this morning, or maybe you proved it last night. But every one of us has proved that we need a mediator because we're unworthy to come to God on our own. We sin, we continue to sin, sin remains, and and on our own, we deserve to be punished. We need a mediator. And the good news is we have a mediator. The very first critical point the author of Hebrews he's trying to make in this passage is that Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our mediator. If you're at verse 15, look, look, at, look in your Bibles. Verse 15 opens with a very profound, it's a far-reaching statement. It says, therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. If there's an irresolvable conflict, a mediator is needed. We had, do you know that? We had an irresolvable conflict. A conflict we could not make right on our own and we needed a mediator. And deep down I believe that every one of us knows that we need a mediator. In the morning when I get up and I'm aware of my failings. I'm aware of my weaknesses. I'm aware of my sins. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before. I don't feel worthy to approach God. I, I have this innate knowledge that I, 
I need someone to bring me before God. But the good news of the gospel that we can apply in those moments is that we do. We already have a mediator. We don't have to feel that separation. Jesus has already mediated the covenant to us. And, and now we can know God on the basis of the merits of Jesus. Since the fall of mankind, a covenant has been required that would reconcile man with his creator and maker. Man was not made to be independent from God. When we were, when we were first created, God created us to do what? He created us to be in the garden with him. He created us to be dependent upon him. He created us to have fellowship with him. But then there was this great rift that occurred. Man's sin divorced mankind from the only one. The only one that we could depend on. The only one we could receive strength from. The only one we could rely on and receive true wisdom from. We had a problem. Apart from God, we're all prone. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm prone to think that I can do things on my own. I'm, I'm prone to think of myself as, as wise on my own. I'm prone to assume I'm self-sustaining and to pretend that I'm self-sufficient. I think we're all prone to do that, aren't we? That's why guys have such a hard time looking for directions. That's why, that's why we don't like to read things. We don't like to read the instructions because we can figure it out on our own. We're prone to be self-sufficient. We're prone to be proud. But all that pride is, is hostility towards God. And whether we know it or not, we need God. Not only do we need God to sustain us, most importantly, we need God to forgive us. We need to be redeemed. We need to be able to commune with him. But in the case where one party has robbed another, one party has committed egregious offenses against the other, payment must be made. A mediator must come to make a way for there to be reconciliation. Here's the good news of this passage this morning. Let it affect you. Let it kind of break through. Let it shatter your, your winter doldrums. We have a mediator in Jesus. We have the best mediator. He stood in our place. He enables us to be reconciled to God. We don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid of God. That's astounding. We don't have to be unsure. We don't have to feel like God has something against us. You ever feel like that God... That we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like God has something against you. You don't have to have those feelings. Instead, you can be confident standing before God, knowing that He wants to help you. Because a mediator has come. And He's reconciled you with God. In our text in Hebrews, it tells us that now Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And if you remember a few weeks ago, He's responding to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Look in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 through 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. Why is that good news so that we can, we can know how to please God? It says, I'll be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will each one tell, teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. And here's the good news for they shall all know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus has come to usher in this new covenant. He's come to mediate this new covenant. To put God's law within us. To give us a new heart. To enable us to serve God. To know God. And the death of Jesus is a ransom for his people. It set us free. And, and, and sometimes I forget the freedom that I have. The freedom that Jesus has mediated to me. The freedom that I have from my weaknesses, from my sins. I have a freedom that our mediator has guaranteed. And I have a freedom that not only am I no longer viewed as sinful, but God views me as righteous. And not only has Jesus done that, he serves as our mediator to guarantee that all of God's promises will be kept. You ever feel like you don't deserve God's promises? It's good news that we have a mediator because his mediation guarantees that all of God's promises will be kept to us. Recently watched a movie about the life of Mary and Joseph. And in, in the movie they just had a little uh, small scene and, and it made me remember something. It was, it was when Mary and Joseph were being pledged in, in, in marriage to each other. And there's a portion of the ancient Jewish marriage ceremony. And it's, it's very meaningful. And in this marriage ceremony, the prospective groom, he takes a cup and he pours wine in the cup. And in front of the father and, and the family, he takes this cup and he hands it to the bride. And when he does that, he declares his desire to be in a marriage covenant with the woman. And I, I can't speak Hebrew, so I won't even attempt to do that. But he, he speaks his desire to be in a marriage covenant. He sips of the cup and then he hands it to the woman. And as the, the prospective bride-to-be takes it, she has a decision to make. If she drinks of the cup, she receives the covenant. Or she can choose to put it down and not receive that marriage covenant. And through drinking, she indicates her acceptance of his covenant proposal by taking that cup. And from then on, she'd be betrothed to him. And the groom would go and prepare a place for her to live. And then with a designated amount of time, he'd return back to her and come and take her back to the place he had prepared. It's a very beautiful, symbolic exchange and sealing of the marriage covenant. Well, in, in Mark fourteen twenty four, do you remember when Jesus was sharing his last meal with his disciples his passover meal with his disciples the passover meal you have to understand in jewish tradition it would have followed very strict guidelines they would have they would have drank specific times they would have eaten at specific times they would have had different symbolic portions of this meal and it would have would have been very meaningful and rich and jesus did something that was very uncharacteristic he did something that would have been very shocking to them you see, in the middle of this Passover meal, this meal that celebrated the substitutionary lamb that, that God had passed over, over all the sins of the Israelites and visited the death that they deserved on the firstborn of the people of Egypt. 
And so they're celebrating, eating this Passover lamb. And, and Jesus, in the middle of that, he interrupts the ceremony. He interrupts all this ritual. And they would have been shocked. You see, I, I think sometimes we forget just how shocking it is when we take communion, how shocking it would have been to them. Because Jesus... He gives new meaning to the breaking of bread. And he explains that it symbolizes body broken for them. And then he does something that they would have immediately recognized as the marriage ceremony covenant. And he takes a cup of wine and he pours it and he drinks it. And he says something strange. He says in Mark 14, 24, he says, this is the my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And in doing so, Jesus was showing us that he is the Passover lamb. He's slaughtered in our place. He's extending the marriage ceremony, this marriage covenant to all those who would take of the cup and drink after him. And he, he's, he's saying that he's ended the hostility of God towards all those who sin. And, and in our passage, we see what Moses said. You remember what Moses said in the passage? It says, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. But let's go back. I want you to see that scripture again. Jesus didn't say this is the blood of the covenant of an animal that God's commanding you to keep. He didn't say that. He said something very different. He says this is my blood of the covenant which, which is poured out for many. What he's saying is we don't keep the covenant. We don't have to keep the covenant any longer. He's mediated the covenant to us in his very blood. And so Hebrews rightly says he's the mediator of a new covenant. This is a very different covenant that we have. It's on the basis of this new covenant that God now relates to all those who are recipients of the covenant. In this covenant that he makes, it enables all of us to receive the promised inherited eternal life. This eternal inheritance. And from the second part of verse 15 through 17, the idea that God wants us to see through this inspired writing, he wants us to see that his death, it secures our inheritance. His death secures our inheritance. Jesus' death secures our inheritance. Look at the second part of verse 15. It says, so that those who are called... What's the whole point of his death? So that those who are called may what? May receive the promised eternal inheritance. And here's how we can be guaranteed that we've received an eternal inheritance. It says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Even in the first covenant, what he's saying is that salvation and redemption, it was not really gotten fully through the sacrifices of animals. He's saying that salvation, even for the foes under the first covenant, it was still based on hope in the sacrifice of Jesus, even though they didn't know it. They were hoping in the grace of God. God had always planned. He knew that one day the debts of mankind would be fully paid. He knew that one day full payment would be made for all the sins of mankind. One day justice would be fully met. One day mankind would no longer have to keep the cup of the covenant that Jesus would take all the punishment on himself. And he would offer us the cup of the covenant in his own blood. One day justice would be fully met in Jesus. One day the penalty would be paid and all the debt would be removed. 
One day all of mankind could be made clean through the atoning, substitutionary sacrifice of a perfect man. Salvation in the Old Covenant, it was based on on God providing for a perfect sacrifice for Himself to pay for mankind's sins and allow God to accept mankind. And what He's saying is in the First Covenant, God had promised an eternal inheritance, but it couldn't be received on the basis of the First Covenant alone. It it had to be received on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death. And what He's saying is all those who called, all those who are called, even those in the past who sinned under the First Covenant, and, and all of those who called are called, including us, were saved one way through the death of Jesus Christ. And his death is what is telling us has brought us freedom from punishment. Freedom from punishment for sin so that all those who are called in Jesus were now not just free, were worthy. We're worthy to receive the promised inheritance, eternal inheritance. It's like a bunch of wayward sons and daughters. Think of a bunch of wayward sons and daughters of um, an extremely wealthy father. And this extremely wealthy father, he has some stipulations in his will. And he has some stipulations that the obedience of his sons and daughters are required in order for them to receive their inheritance. And then he dies... And the wayward sons and daughters are at risk because they're, they're they didn't earn it. They're not. They've not kept. They've not kept their their part of the bargain. They've not. They've not been worthy to receive their inheritance, the father's inheritance. But it's like another son comes along who has perfectly kept all of the requirements of the father, and this perfect son says. I've kept all the requirements of the Father and all the inheritance that I deserve, all the inheritance that I earned in effect, all the inheritance of the Father, I'm now going to turn and give to all of these sons and daughters. The ones who were once wayward receive the promised inheritance. And before we move on, I think the Lord wants us to understand, to linger on this idea of of a promised eternal inheritance. You know, because I think we, we, we all want security, don't we? We all want security. We, we search for security in so many things. We want security. We try to control things. Anybody here like to control things? You like to know the outcome of things? You try to control um, what your family does. Maybe you try to control your kids, your spouse, or at work, and, and you make yourself a mess. Well, why is that? Because you're wanting security. We try to control things. We try to control the outcome. We try to build our own little kingdoms. We try to secure our future through effort, through manipulation, and at times through presenting the best image of ourselves. But we need a real security that doesn't rely on us, don't we? We need security that doesn't depend on us because we ultimately, we know. We know, don't fool yourselves. You know that we we have no security in ourselves. We need Jesus to secure our future. We need Jesus to secure our inheritance. And I... These verses in Hebrews, they're meant to give us hope. They're meant to give us hope that as we see Jesus, He's the one who gives us this eternal inheritance. And the way He gives us the eternal inheritance is by His death. And it not only purifies us from uncleanness, is what it's telling us, but it provides a forgiveness of our sins. And how can we be sure? How can we know we have this eternal inheritance? It's saying because a death has occurred. 
because the death of Jesus has occurred, we can receive His eternal inheritance. And now we have the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Don't, don't think lightly of that. That's an inheritance that's better than any kind of inheritance you can imagine. See, for thousands of years, God promised His people to bring them into the promised land. But now, we have the sure hope we will dwell with God forever. We have a sure, eternal inheritance. And the inheritance we have been given in Jesus Christ is the only inheritance that's never going to run out. Do you realize that? Your inheritance is never going to run out. It's a common occurrence. I was doing some studying and, and seeing, well, well, in general, when people are given inheritances, how, how often do they squander them? How often do they last beyond one generation? And I found out that, according to some research, the Williams Group, apparently 70% of all wealth transfers through inheritances, they all fail. They don't even last through the first generation. 70% of all inheritances, do not last beyond a few years. It's reported by Forbes, the failure isn't that the money doesn't get passed down, it's that it quickly dissolves in a flash of, of poor planning and bickering and waste. And We don't have that kind of inheritance. You see, we have an inheritance that will never fade, that you can never outspend. Do you know that? Does that give you joy in Christ? You have an inheritance that you're never going to spend out. No matter how much. No matter how much you try. It will not fade. It's the only inheritance that can be received forever and never become less. Or every earthly inheritance is eventually going to be exhausted. Every earthly inheritance is going to run out. No earthly inheritance is going to endure. Maybe you're hoping for a big earthly inheritance. Let me encourage you, we have a better hope than that. That's far too small of a hope. Maybe you're hoping for financial deliverance. That's far too small of a hope. You see, Jesus, remember when he made that marriage covenant with us? And we're, we're betrothed. We're in that period of betrothal. And he's gone away. And what did he say? He says, in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you, just like in the early traditions of the ancient Jewish marriage, he would make that covenant, and we go and he would build a place that the bride could come to. And Jesus is saying, I go and I prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you that. He has an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, and when he returns, he's going to come and he's going to take us back. To share in his eternal inheritance. Think for that, that for a moment. You have riches in Christ that cannot be exhausted. You may feel like, you know what, my, my finances are running out. I don't know, I don't have any certainty for the future. You do have a certain future. You have a certain future in Christ. If you're not in Christ Jesus, let me encourage you, put your hope in the only place where there is true hope. In Jesus Christ alone, that He's the only one who brings true riches. In eternity, we can be taken care of forever. Our future with God is provided for eternally. Now, in verses 16 and 17, I think the author of Hebrews, he's, he's using an analogy of a last will and a testament. And so in the ESV, is translated, and you can look in verse 16 and 17, it says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it 
must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, in the original language, it's important to know that he's using the same word here that we have translated in English as will. It's the same word that we have earlier in verse 15 and later in verse 18 as covenant. But I think he's making a play on words of sorts and, and he uses a, this common meaning for covenant can also be used as will or testament and he's making a point that relates the idea of an inheritance because an inheritance is normally only received when someone dies and so he says where a covenant in the last sense of will and testaments involves somebody has to die before you get what's promised in the will and for the sake of those who are younger, there's a few here who may not know what a will is. What a will is, is, is when someone has accumulated something that's worth passing on, whether that's a house or, or money or things like that, they write down what they desire, what they will. They write down in a testament, they make a covenant with the future generation that here's what they want to happen, here's what they want to translate over, here's, here's how their things that they left behind should be dispersed. And so, in this case, the author of Hebrews, he's saying that the death of Jesus has has enacted a new covenant. And, and all the promises of God now are dispersed. That we have received the promised eternal inheritance in this life, in the life to come through the death of Jesus. And then he goes on to say that it's, it's not different than the first covenant in the sense that it required the shedding of blood still. You see, for us to receive this eternal inheritance, for us to receive the blessings of the promise, Jesus had to die. And even in the first covenant, he says in verse 18, he says, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And what we're intended to see in verses 18 to 22, it's that for both those under the old covenant and for us in the new covenant, they alike, we're all meant to see that Jesus' blood is our guarantee. Jesus' blood is our guarantee. The first covenant it was inaugurated with blood too, is what he's saying. He says, but it wasn't, it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't good enough to completely remove the offenses that humanity had committed against God. Animal sacrifices could not atone for the sins of mankind, as we've been learning. They couldn't redeem us or wipe away humanity's debts. It's, it's like paying on an interest-only loan. Those have become popular. People buy a, a $10 million home and they get an interest-only loan. They only pay the interest on that loan. So it's like... It's like paying on an interest-only loan for a $10 million home. It continues to lose its value and it depreciates. That's a, that's a daunting proposition, isn't it? The interest alone is daunting. Paying the interest, it just keeps you in the home. And, and what he's saying is it's like the home's not really yours. You know that you never really possess it even though it's yours to live in. And in a way, the first covenant was a little like that. It was like it was only paying the interest. It didn't truly pay all the debt. It was just paying the interest on on what we committed against God. It just allowed us to live in God's presence. But now all of our debts have been paid. Now His blood is our guarantee that our debt has been wiped out. The first covenant, it showed there needed to be made payment. And then God set up a way that there could be a good faith effort made on mankind's behalf through animal sacrifices. But the first covenant, it still rested on the grace and mercy of God. And God was merciful to provide a way that he would overlook man's sins. And he was gracious to overlook man's sins through the sacrifice of animals. But then verse 19 to 22, they, they detail how death and how 
this symbolism, it covered, this covering of blood was central to the first covenant. Look in verse 19. It says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, stop and just picture this in your mind, okay? Picture this in your mind for a moment. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkles the blood itself, and he sprinkles all the people. That must have been quite a jolt. He's sprinkling blood on you. He's sprinkling blood on the book of the covenant. He's sprinkling blood on all the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. What he means is if you don't keep the covenant, it's your blood that will be required. And then in the same way, it says, he sprinkled with the blood the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Can you picture that? It must have been a bloody scene. A very startling, gross scene as blood lands on the faces of the people. And they see this is a serious covenant we've entered into. The sights and the sounds of the animals being slaughtered. The tent was sprinkled with blood and all the vessels used in worship. And the blood was sprinkled on everything, even the book of the covenant. And then it was sprinkled on all the people. What a bloody, bloody sight. What a graphic picture that would have been in their minds. That first generation, it would have stuck in their minds. This is a serious covenant that requires death. It was a reminder that justice needed to be met. It was a reminder that blood was required. And then it tells us that this repetition, this sprinkling of blood, the continual sacrifices of the first covenant, they showed that justice, we, we learned last week, it was never really fully met. There had to be continual bloodletting. Every year they went into the tent. And every year the slaughter of animals occurred. And as the animals cried out and as the blood was spilled and the smells and the sights and the sounds, every time was meant to remind them to point forward to the fact that they needed, they needed for their sins to truly be provided for. They needed justice to be met fully because they were bloody. They were guilty. So in the end of verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the point is this. The point is this. The author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus has once and for all time offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect once and for all sacrifice. In Romans 3, Paul's explaining that the blood had to be shed, the blood of Jesus had to be shed in order for God's righteous anger to be turned away or propitiated, and that through the blood of Jesus we're justified through faith in Jesus' sacrifice. In Romans 3.20, it says, For by works of the law, so by what we do, No human being will be justified in his sight. No matter how good you are, no matter how hard you try, you're never going to be justified in his sight on your own. It says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And here's the good news we need to hear this morning. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from anything you could ever do. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe, and we need to believe this morning in the blood of Jesus. 
And it goes on to say, for there's no distinction. You may not, you may not believe you sinned, but it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, not as an earning, it says, but as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a turning away of His wrath. And how did it happen? It says, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the former sins. That's what our verse in Hebrews is telling us too. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus has shed His blood and because He's shed His blood, our sins are forgiven. And and the will of God was enacted. The will of God was put into place when Jesus' death was accepted on our behalf. So now we can inherit the promised eternal life. And in these verses, they really serve to highlight really the importance of Christ's sacrificial blood. Jesus' blood, it's the guarantee of the new covenant. Maybe you're doubting this morning. Maybe you're wondering, how can I be sure? How do I know that, that this new covenant's for me? And what he's saying is that Jesus' death, his blood was the guarantee. And in his death, when he died, God's divine will, his, his promised eternal inheritance was put into place. And his blood provides us access to God. It inaugurates the new covenant. It sets us apart. It makes our conscience clean. It purifies us on the inside. It provides forgiveness of sins. You remember who this book was originally written to? It was written to those who were tempted to cling to another hope. Yet, are you ever tempted to cling to another hope? It was written to those who were tempted to hope in ritual and the keeping of the law. And one of the main reasons this whole passage was written was to encourage everybody who hears it, to encourage everyone who reads it to trust only in his death and the shed blood of Jesus to make you clean. The author, in effect, is saying, don't look anywhere else. Maybe this morning you came in and you're feeling kind of blah. Maybe you're looking somewhere else to fulfill you. Maybe you're looking somewhere else to satisfy. Maybe you're looking somewhere else for security. Maybe you're looking somewhere else for hope. Maybe you're looking for somewhere else to feel clean, to feel good enough, to feel like you can stand in God's presence. This passage is it's saying, in effect, don't look to anyone or anything else. Only Jesus can secure eternal inheritance. What's, what's the main idea? What's the main point of all of this? What's the big idea of this whole text? It's really just this. Jesus mediates the new covenant. And he secures our inheritance in his blood. Jesus mediates a new covenant. And he secures our inheritance in his blood. You can rest secure knowing that we have an inheritance. Knowing we can have an eternal inheritance that doesn't depend on us. His blood, it's the guarantee that He's provided forgiveness to us once and for all. He's made us clean. Don't look to anything else to, to mediate between you and God. Don't even look to how you feel. 
Jesus has already served as the ultimate final mediator between God and man. And we're being told here, don't look for any other kind of reward to satisfy you. Don't look for any other inheritance to satisfy. Look to the promised eternal inheritance. Our only hope, their only hope in Hebrews, our only hope, it's continuing to trust in Jesus, to rest in what His death of the cross has accomplished for us. And our inheritance, the good news is, it doesn't depend on our performance. It depends on the death of Christ, that He died in our place. And now we can receive the promises of God in Him. I would go ahead and ask the band to come up. As they do, I want you to think for a moment about what it tells us in this verse. Remember, remember in verse 20, look down in your Bibles in verse 20. Moses, inaugurating the covenant, said, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. But now, what Jesus has done is Jesus has come. And he's poured out wine as a symbol of his blood. And, and he effectively is taking it and he's handing it to us. To each and every one here. And he's saying, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood. And he doesn't ask you to keep it. Why? Because he's already kept it he's already kept it and he secured our internal inheritance and it's kept because he's made a covenant with you in his blood your covenant does not with god does not depend on your performance it does not depend on you your eternal inheritance depends on him and it depends on you receiving in faith receiving the cup of the covenant in his blood and saying yes jesus I'm trusting only in your blood because I cannot and I could not keep it.